Welcome to Real Talk, Real Women, Breaking the Silence Around Abuse. I am Gemma Sereniti Gorokov, your host, and today we have the honor of having a special guest, Marcy McCary. Welcome, Marcy. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Marcy, can you please tell us a little bit about your story? First of all, who you are, what you do, but your story with an emphasis on the kind of abuse you overcame. Sure. So my name is Marcy McCary, and I'm a transformational life coach and a, an inspirational speaker. And I speak on the topic of resiliency. Um, and I also help people find their own resilience, tap into what is innately within us in order to overcome difficult life circumstances and challenges. Um, I have experienced pretty much every kind of abuse possible. Um, I've uh, experienced psychological abuse, financial abuse, physical abuse, um, neglect, abandonment, um, addiction, sort of the around me, not within myself, but around me. Um, and then religious uh, abuse and trauma, which is something that I'll definitely be talking about today. All right. Thank you. That gives us an overview of the kind of things we can talk today. Thank you very much. So what kind of environment did you grow up in? Sure. So I was born to a drug addicted, heroin addicted mother um, and an alcoholic father who was in the military. Um, their relationship was very turbulent, a lot of physical violence. I saw people shot. I saw uh, attempted murders um, before the age of four. Um, and my father, my birth father, I should say, um, he actually uh, abducted me and left the state. So I became a poster child and we were sort of on the run for a long time. He then married my stepmother um, and they had four more children with him. Oh, yeah, she had four more children with him. And so I was the oldest of five. And there was a lot of abuse within that home because he still was an abuser and he was still an alcoholic. She was not an alcoholic, but she did have abusive, uh, emotionally and psychologically abusive tendencies. And because I was the only child from another mother, I was usually the focal point for that abuse, um, which translated throughout my life. Um, and then um, I actually was in, we, my birth father became sober and we decided to all start attending church. Um, and we started attending a charismatic non-denominational church. I call it a happy clappy church. And uh, we, I learned very quickly within that church that women were not equal to men, that we were not allowed to teach men. We were not allowed to speak above men. Um, if we were asked to do something by a man, the answer was only yes. And um, I'll never forget this one one time when my birth father was trying to connect with me as a teenager, I was, you know, getting a little attitude how teenagers do. And uh, he was trying to redirect that attitude. And so he asked if I wanted to go on a father-daughter date. I was super excited about that. I was like, yeah, for sure. So we went, we played pool, we had a burger. It was fantastic. And then he asked me again a couple of weeks later. I was like, for sure. So we get in the car and he drives to the church and he says, I just need to grab something from the library, which is in the basement. And he's like, why don't you come in with me? I was like, okay. I mean, why not? So we start walking in and he opens the library door and seated at the table are all of the men leadership of the church. I am the only female in the room. And I was, I think 14, no, about 15 or 16. 
I was the only female in the room. And um, they proceeded to spend about an hour telling me what a terrible person I was, how I was absolutely not walking with God, that I was um, seducing older men, that I was um, disobedient and defiant to my father. It was just a whole barrage of, you know, basically telling me that I needed to repent and obey my dad. So from that point on, my relationship with my with my birth father was never the same. And um, I learned a lot from the experience about what the church believes and what they don't believe. Like it didn't matter what I said about what the abuse was happening at home. Nobody listened to that. They only listened to his telling them that I was a terrible teenager. So all of that sort of, you know, set me up for the next phase, which was when I actually joined at the age of 17. I So at 16, I left home. And um, at 17, I got on an airplane from a teeny tiny town in Western New York and flew to LA. And um, I had never even really been out of the state alone. So that was very stressful and exciting. Um, I flew to LA and I joined a theater ministry. Um, we'll call it CP just to keep it safe. And um, I joined CP and uh, I spent five years in a f basically what was a very similar situation as my church. So the men had the power and, you know, women were there to serve them, to have babies. But of course, you have to be a virgin until you're married. And um, my very first mission, I was still 17. I hadn't turned 18 yet. And I was with a predator and didn't know it. They sent me on the road and um, he was 37. I was 17 and he started to groom me, started to, I didn't know what it was at the time. Of course, I was super innocent. I had never been touched by a man. There was just no, there was no frame of reference for me. And he began to talk to me a lot and, and work out ways that we would be alone together. And he would help me with things and he became very sort of friendly and pretty much to the day that I turned 18, um, which was the. Um, age of consent and where we were, he started to molest me and it was forcible molestation. It was very uncomfortable and painful. And he attempted to rape me twice. One time we were on a military base and he lifted me up. I was very tiny at the time. And he lifted me up, hiked my skirt, pulled my um, stockings down and held me against a fence and tried to rape me in the air. So I was screaming and, you know, he stopped because he didn't want to get caught. I went to the office that was directly in charge of us and they reported to world headquarters who at our big banquet called me in and I told my story and apparently he was engaged to a woman in the ministry and I had no idea. And they proceeded to try to kick me out of the ministry because I had been, you know, cheating with a nearly married man. It was a very, that moment for me was so powerless because I was doing such good work and I was working for like a non-guaranteed stipend of 20 bucks an hour. I mean, 20 bucks a week. And it was just like, I was doing all of this sacrificing and giving. And I just felt so hurt that they would turn against me. The reason that they actually didn't kick me out was there was a, a lady who I still adore for this. She was married to a man in the ministry. She was actually quite high up in the ministry's leadership. And um, I mean, as far as wives could be. <laughs> and she um, 
she went to the leader and said to him, when I was in, you know, 17, it's the day that I turned 18, my unit leader caught me getting out of the shower, laid me on the bed, penetrated me one time and then left just so that he could take my virginity. And she was like, this is not about seduction. This is about manipulation. So she stood up for me. So I think in that moment, I really learned how important it is for women to speak up about what we are experiencing, not only to ourselves, but to leadership that is facilitating and propagating these these lies, you know. So I was in this ministry. I got married very young because that's what we do. And <laughs> I got pregnant right away. And um, we got sent to South Africa, which was, um, oh, and I should also state that before I got married, I knew I had an attraction for women. And because I had been told my whole life that um, if you were gay, you were definitely going to hell, unless you never acted on it. You could have the feelings, but the moment that you acted on it, you were officially sinning and um, it was unforgivable. So I basically suppressed those feelings for a really long time. I did confess to my future husband when we were engaged to let him know that this was something that I was struggling with. Um, and he said, well, I mean, that's okay because I've had sex with cows because he worked on a farm. Like the two are the same, right? Like the two are somehow equal. And I remember standing there thinking, that's not even the same thing. It's not even close to the same thing. But in the mind of these people, any kind of sexual sort of difference between that was not heterosexual between man and woman um, and just one man or woman, <laughs> anything that, that deviated from that was a deviant, you know, uh, lifestyle. So in any case, we got sent to Africa when I was pregnant. Um, things turned very difficult, very quickly. Um, one of the team members on my team was a very good looking lady. And she sort of came onto me out of nowhere. And I had these strong feelings. I ended up um, being sort of semi-sexual with her and feeling horrible. So I um, was stifling that feeling and telling her no. And we were at um, in a training room. And I was saying, I was being defiant about something that my ex was asking of me. And one of the office um, leadership overheard me and decided to send me away so I could get straightened out. Um, but first they wanted to have like a, uh, you know, like a chapel time. We're going to, we're going to all have a little chapel time and then we're going to send you on retreat and keep in mind, I had a very small baby. So being separated from her without any like permission was very um, stressful and very traumatic for me. But in any case, they took me into a chapel and there was like this very strange quiet in this place that felt very uncomfortable. And I sat down and the preacher started talking about how there are spirits and how there are spirits of, you know, defiance and um, arrogance. And, you know, all of a sudden everybody was laying hands on me and they were trying to cast out demons, the demon of defiance in me. And it was super I don't know, super humiliating, it was very painful. It was embarrassing and scary and all of those things. 
Um, about two days later, they sent me away on a forced retreat to try to get my act together. And um, at the retreat, it was a non-speaking retreat. So there were other groups there, but nobody was speaking to each other. The only place you could talk was to the pastor who ran the retreat. So I walked into the pastor's office. I needed to tell somebody that I was gay and figure out what to do. How do I suppress this? How do I stay a Christian and have this feeling? And um, I, I confessed to him what was going on and why I was at the retreat. And he kind of just smiled at me. And he got up from his desk and he walks past me and he goes to the door. He closes the door and he comes and he sits on the corner of the desk and he says, just so you know, I'm also gay and it's okay. And I burst into tears because it was such a relief to find somebody who understood. And we talked for probably a good hour and a half. He gave me a bunch of books to read. And I filled my heart and my soul with positive permission to be me for that whole rest of that. I think it was four days. Um, it was really lovely. And it was very ironic that they sent me away to get fixed. And I came back even more sure of who I was. So of course, I had to leave the ministry. Um, they, I called them and said, this isn't going to change. I'm going to need, you know, to get out. And Leah, the girl I was um, having a quick affair with, and I do not condone affairs, but under the circumstances, that's what I had done. It was a poor choice that I made. Um, she said she would come with me at some point. We would meet up. And I said, okay, but she couldn't come that day. So I was kicked out of the home that we were, was, it's called a host home where they sort of put you up overnight or a couple of nights at a time. So they, they kicked me out of the host home with a baby on my back and anything I could carry that belonged to me. And they refused to fly me home and they would not renew my work visa, which meant that I was stranded in Southern Africa with a baby. There was no way to get home and there was no way to legally work. So to say that things were suddenly very dark would be an understatement. I did make it through the first few days, just kind of finding a place to land. Um, I found a, a woman to put me up. Um, she was a lovely lady, very kind, kind of a little older than me and, but very kind and very giving. She was also a lesbian, but she was sort of celibate and just, um, wanted to be supportive. So we were there, I was there, then Leah joined me and very quickly Leah turned abusive, physically abusive, verbally abusive. So now I'm in Africa with a baby, cannot work and relying on her to support me. And I eventually just was like, I had to run because she tried to kill me. And I looked up from the stairwell and I saw my daughter watching out the door. And I thought, I can't do this. I can't, I can't put her through the same stuff I saw as a child. So I packed my stuff and disappeared. And um, the only way to survive was to make handmade greeting cards. And I sold them to flower shops. I traded them for food at the farmer's market. I would wrap her on my back with a towel, like the beautiful black, you know, native people and put this little white baby on my back. And I'd sit down next to all of these amazing artisans with all their soapstone carvings and just lay out my cards and I would sell them. I traded them for mangoes. I think I lived on mangoes for like a month and <laughs> you know, it's the only way I could, like, it's the only way I could survive. Um, and so for me, that experience was 
really dark and it changed for a long time. It changed my belief in a God at all. And I went seeking all sorts of answers. I, you know, I've been at um, Hare Krishna temples. I've been um, in, you know, like a, a um, circle for a coven. I've done, you know, all different kinds of religious experiences and even atheism I've tried on just to try to find an answer because how could God do that? How could God even allow that? And of course, people in that community would say that God didn't do that, that humans did that. And my feeling on that is that that's a sort of a kind of a cheap answer because it still was, I was in service to God. I was a missionary and in my mind, and it's still in my mind, if God existed, I should have been cared for. So I, um, I have left the sort of organized religion, you know, um, but here's the thing, doing that, having to create things in order to survive, it sparked in me this drive to be an entrepreneur. And I have had some amazing and beautiful businesses. And I have had so many experiences within that horrible organization. I still experienced miracles that, that are unexplainable and beautiful and I think that my ability to be resilient comes from a lot of different places. But one of them is that I'm really good at looking at the situation I'm in and finding the joy, finding the hope, finding the thing that is one, one small thing that will help me step forward. And then I can sort of grow from where I am, you know, and the resilience is an important part of human experience, obviously, but it's also innate in everybody. So no matter the experience that you're having, no matter how dark, no matter if anybody's listening, no matter, you know, being gay, especially in Africa at that time, it was borderline illegal that you could be jailed, you could be beaten up, you could like everything was underground, everything was hidden, you know, any kind of social activity with other people who were gay identified was secretive. You know, you had to like knock on the door of the, you know, person on street number this, and you knock on that door and then you say a password and then they lead you to another building. And in that building, there's a hidden little tiny club for lesbians to get together and play pool and have a, have a drink. Yeah. It's, it was, it was a really crazy, quiet, like life. Nobody could know. You had to be very secretive. And I think that the hardest part for me was that my whole family at the time disowned me. So it was sort of like, oh, we're not going to help you come home. So you are going to have to figure it out. You either come back to God and be straight or and consider reuniting with your husband or like you're on your own. So I lost everything and it actually caused me to go back in the closet. I went back in the closet for another 20 years. And I think in that time, the most significant part was that um, I knew I was in the wrong place 
I still made the best I could out of what I had, but I was really envious. Whenever I would see a lesbian couple walking down the road, holding hands, being free, enjoying each other, loving, you know, I had experienced what it was I was supposed to be, how I was supposed to be expressing love, which was with another female. And instead of having the opportunity to enjoy that openly, I never had that. So I went back in the closet, like I said, for almost 20 years. And then I came back out again. Um, and I've stayed out. I'm out forever now. Um, it's been, I think, seven years. Um, and it's a very, it's an interesting dichotomy because I'm straight passing. Like if you see me on the, on the street, you would never know that I'm gay. I don't have any, I mean, except for my tattoo, which is like rainbow. <laughs> if you don't see my tattoo, like you wouldn't know. And even, and even that, because one of the things that is so funny is that we have made rainbow the symbol of LGBTQ, but it is just a rainbow. Yeah. 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 You, you make <laughs> it mean whatever like you rainbows. want. Yeah. That's I mean, true. Yeah. Well, my, my tattoo says I am hers. She is mine. So that's, a, that's, a, yeah, it's not, it's, you can't really make anything else, you know, but, um, but aside from that, I'm straight passing. So I have a, a dichotomy because in some ways I'm privileged because unless I tell people who I am and what I, you know, that I'm a, a lesbian, they don't know. And so I don't get judged as quickly or sort of, off the list of jobs or, you know, whatever. Um, but I'll never forget when I, I actually, I have a, like a, another job that I do. I teach culinary arts to developmentally disabled individuals. And um, when I went to go do that job, I hid my tattoo. And um, because they were real ambiguous on their website about what they, what they were okay with and what they were not okay with. And um, at the interview, I said, they were really, they're ready to hire me. They were super excited. And I said, I have to ask you something. Are you LGBTQ supportive? Is this a, is this a safe environment for an LGBTQ person? And they start to kind of laugh, you know, they're like, of course we are, you know, so-and-so is gay and so-and-so is gay. We're, we're totally fine. And I said, you know, I needed to ask that in person because your website doesn't completely, it doesn't like specifically say that that's a right that you protect, where it does say other rights are protected. And, um, and I said, for somebody who lived in a place where that was not safe, this is, you know, it's something that I have to, I had to ask, you know, so it was really, it was, it was a new beginning for me to feel like I could be open about that with, with, um, with my job. But yeah, so Religious abuse and trauma is real, and um, it has propelled me into helping others to find their resilience. Um, I'm a steadfast entrepreneur. I always have something going, and I love that. I've learned about how creativity helps us process traumatic um, memory and experiences, um, and I love leading workshops where I help women to overcome those things and you know and and feel free. There's something really beautiful about that hopeful discovery so yeah marcy your story is absolutely exceptional inspiring for giving hmm. giving permission to be oneself to be ourselves whoever we are because right now you talk about being a lesbian but it can be anything for that matter that yes. makes you slightly different mm -hmm. and then unaccepted rejected yeah. cast yes. away and it's like, why? 
I'm just who I am. Yes. And one of the other things I really want to 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 say that's ideal to say only men and women can love each other and have babies and be a family. Mm. That was because, first of all, that was written 2000 years ago. Right. And it's still, it's still applied today in rigorous Bible following churches mm-hmm. environments. Mm-hmm. But objectively, it was 2000 years ago. Imagine if Jesus Christ would have been a woman. <laughs> that wouldn't have gone through the societies the way people think. Right, right. It's not because he was a man or whatever it was. Because that society only acknowledged men at that moment in time, 2,000 years ago. Correct. Yeah. And that same story has just continued throughout ages, translated in many languages, so that today we can still apply 2,000 years ago right. rules and right. ways of living and that dichotomy between men and women. One of the things that is true is that there is that speci- that that unique verse that nobody understands to say, women must submit to their husbands. Yes, yes. But the, the complement of that is that husbands must love their mm-hmm. wives the way Jesus that Christ Jesus loved, loved the, the church. church. Yeah. And that means love so much. But love means respect, means mm-hmm. means. Uh, uh, Putting on a pedestal means adoring, means mm-hmm. making sure it's okay, means caring for. Doesn't mean like break, 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 beat and, and try to straighten up. Mm. And, and doesn't mean all of that. Right. It just right. means loving so much to the point of giving away your life mm-hmm. so that your loved one can actually live and expand. This is what that divine love means and that is the counterpart of being submitted quote unquote well i think that that the word yeah i think the word submission in this context is misleading because it really is more of a receiving it's more like you're receiving love and in exchange you're offering like cooperation with what you're building together um it's when we don't receive love and we don't receive support that we are no longer willing to cooperate. I think submission is a very tricky word. Um, And I think that it's been taken, the the people who want to use it for bad have really sort of usurped it. Um, But I think it's more about a collaborative effort. There has to be a leader. And I think sometimes in a male, female or masculine, feminine dynamic, one person is a leader at this moment and then the other person is a leader at the other moment. Really falling on each other's strengths is the best way to accomplish getting where we want to go, right? So it's just like any team. Totally agree. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm, totally agree on that one. And indeed, um, when you look at um, current couples, regardless uh, the the sex, they were, do- they, they were granted that birth. Mm-hmm. It's really a question of character. Yes. Tendencies to know who is integrity. the leader in a couple. Yeah. Integrity to mm-hmm. know who is the leader in the couple. And sometimes there is no leader. 
both are independent and sure. both just work together. And if yeah, they grow in the same it. direction, they stay. And if they grow apart, they grow apart. Yeah. Everything's fine. It doesn't have to yeah. be with abuse and all of that. And I really want no. to acknowledge you and to tell you my compassion that as soon as you finally got your first woman, she happens to be abusive toward you to the point mm -hmm. of wanting something to kill I never you. thought. Like, like, wow. Yeah. yeah. One of the realization since doing that show, since talking with people, is that domestic abuse or violence or those those toxic relationships, no, no gender, no frontier, no, 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 no race, no economic status, no nothing. Everybody at some point can experience either being victim of abuse or being a perpetrator mm -hmm. of abuse. Mm -hmm. You cannot know by looking at someone. And sometimes I remember yeah. having seen like uh, um, uh, thrillers and things like that were looking for the, uh, the culprit. Everybody was looking at the ugliest to be the culprit who was just the best oh. that person could be. And the real culprit was <laughs> the most beautiful, good-looking woman, for that matter. And he's like, what? Very interesting. And everybody yeah. was like stunned yeah. to that outcome. Because there is that expectation. Yeah, and if I... Go ahead. Yes. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, I just wanted to add here that with domestic violence, it's so important for communities to be supportive of their LGBTQ members because if there is domestic violence in same-sex couples and they do not feel safe to go to the um, the police for support, there is a much greater chance that they will die um, and that they will have, you know, sustain abuse for a very long time. It's important yeah. to protect those who are marginalized. Yeah, yeah I agree. Fully, fully, completely agree. And... Uh, and, um, and I'm fully supportive of the LGBTQ community. I'm part of it as well. And it's very important to understand that you can have an attraction to whoever you want. You are still integrally, like integer, a human being with rights, mm -hmm. with dreams, with aspiration, yes. with, yes. with everything. Absolutely. You are no less because you are attracted to not exactly what you should be, right? And should be according or to what, laws and yes. rules and society. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. Absolutely. Thank you, Marcy, for coming yeah. on air today. Thank you for sharing your Thank story. You. you really have an amazing storytelling style. I love your style. And I look forward to interviewing you again. Oh, thank you. I look forward to it too. Thank you for having me.